Growth happens in the challenging and messy parts of life. I never want to stop learning and growing uh, to, to be stretched as a person. Gosh, I believe we grow best in relationship with others, and it's important to never lose sight of the human sitting in front of me. You know, my hope is to always have the hard conversations well. And we need to do a better job of holding space for each other. Asking the difficult questions is important, but I want to do it in a way that has genuine humility and curiosity. One of my favorite phrases is the staying power. And at the end of the day, I want to know that I did that. We need more nuanced dialogue to keep learning. And a part of that is we really need to get better at listening. We are two unique female professionals and friends that have come together to have meaningful conversations and a little fun along the way. Welcome to the Arable Podcast, where curious minds grow. I'm your host, Jenna Mountain. And I'm your other host, Kimberly Galindo. Today on the show, we're thrilled to have Karita Dunkoff and Katrina Ballard on the podcast with us. Uh, I met Katrina and Karita in college, and they are two of the most delightful, incredible humans I know. Uh, Katrina and I both majored in psychology, so I have tons of fond memories of us being in classes together and uh, doing study sessions together, or at least trying. I mean, we would try to study, right? Um, Karita was an English major, so we didn't share as many classes together, but we do have some pretty hysterical and uh, funny memories of being in Spanish together. Um, and we'll, we'll save those stories for another episode, but um, they're, they're pretty funny. Um, but before we dive into our conversation today, Katrina and Karita, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, so you can introduce yourself to the audience? Um, tell us a little bit about yourself personally, professionally, um, so that they can get to know you and your voices. I'm Karita Dunkoff. Um, I am a high school English teacher. Um, I've taught, this is my it's my 10th year of teaching. I have to think about it sometimes, but I've been a teacher for 10 years. Um, I have two boys and they are 13 and 11. And um, I also have re-kickstarted the blog that I started in college. Um, it's called Something True, so check me out. I'm currently writing a series on that um, about unlearning racial bias that I hope will one day maybe hopefully be a book. I hope. It is my hope. Me too. And um, I also have, um, during the pandemic and all the closures, have um, reawakened my, the extrovert inside my introvert. And so I'm part of several local um, activism-related efforts. Um, I've been I'm a part of a group of women who are starting a Be the Bridge group in January. Um, also am a part of a group that is working to um, to strategize around removing the Confederate monument in front of the courthouse here in Greg County. And um, I'm missing something, y'all. There's another something that's new. Oh, the Longview Remembrance Project. So Longview, Texas, where I live and where I met Kimberly when we went to, um, to college here, um, Longview was one of many sites of the race riots of 1919. And there is a um, 
a local effort that I'm a part of to bring uh, an undertold historical marker here, as well as the lynching memorial from the Legacy Museum in Alabama. Um, and we're also hoping to start very soon to, um, recording footage to create a documentary around that as well. So that's me. Rita, that story's amazing. That's like a lot of stuff. That's awesome. My name's Katrina, and I am currently an entrepreneur. Um, I own a business called Root and Restore, which provides mental health support um, and strategy for um, entrepreneurs who work for themselves and small business owners. Um, that is been, it's about, I started that company in 2017. And it has been um, an absolute joy. It's been a major journey of lots of ups and downs, but um, a lot of fun. I actually worked in higher education with my degrees prior to having children, had my oldest son about five years ago and was a calligrapher for three years and then switched into doing this mental health um, journey again, just because I the fa my favorite part about talking to people was, or my favorite part about calligraphy was talking to people. So I knew that I probably wasn't in the right sphere of work. <laughs> um, so I went back to mental health by starting my own business and I love it. Um, I love entrepreneurship. I love um, the journey of owning your own business and going, stepping out for yourself and the highs and the lows. Um, and that was really unexpected for me. I didn't think that I would, I would ever want to do that or enjoy it as much as I do, but, um, it's a lot of fun. So I, um, just recently actually accepted a position in, um, a local chapter in Houston, um, for a marketing organization called American Marketing Association um, as the diversity, equity, and inclusion director for AMA Houston. And that has been um, an incredible journey for me. It has brought, um, it's, yeah, it's just been a really good journey. And I love that work as well. Um, that was because I was on a podcast in the summer with some friends for racial um just talking about racial topics in on a podcast with the past president of the organization in Houston and then was asked to join as the diversity equity and inclusion director and took on that role and so I'm doing a lot of work in Houston with connecting with professional organizations so my work tends to be more on the professional side in terms of connecting professional organizations that serve minority populations and kind of bringing them all together. AMA tends to be the larger group that needs to do a better job of serving less, more marginalized populations. And so it's challenging work, it's good work. It's been really fulfilling for me to be able to make connections that previously weren't there. Um, it's stretching me. So yeah, I'm a mom of two boys. I should say that. Um, I met my husband in college. There's a lot of college connection. <laughs> uh, I made fun of the girls who met their boyfriends in college, and then that became part of my story. So I learned real quick, keep your mouth shut. Um, and <laughs> uh, 
yeah, we've been married for 13 years. We have, we waited a while to have kids. So we have a five year, almost six year old and a two and a half year old. So that's it. Wow. You two women are impressive on several levels. Um, what an honor to have you guys with us today. I, I am uh, getting to know you guys as um, we're, we're having this experience because I know you guys have a connection with Kimberly historically. Um, and I, I, so I, my husband has been teaching for nearly 10 years. So I'm listening to the story going, oh, I so connect with that. And, you know, um, and, and just his journey in education and been in higher ed. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having fun for the listeners. Katrina is joining us from the beauty of the outdoors. And we love that because, um, we, we have visual, you do not, but we can see all of God's glorious creation in the background. And we absolutely love it. So if you hear some of that, we, we welcome that. Um, ladies, thank you for being with us today. We want to have a conversation about interracial marriage, multi-heritage families, um, the nuance that exists with individual experiences um, within the greater conversation at large about relationships, race, and marriage. Um, I know for me, um, there are kind of two instances that stand out um, in that, um, in my awareness um, other than being in an interracial relationship myself. Um, one was in my doctoral program. Uh, there was a doctoral seminar that they brought in via the, via the web, um, a speaker who, I may get this word wrong. I think it was, she was a part of a task force or led a task force for the, for ACA, the American Counseling Association on serving from a counseling and mental health perspective, multi-heritage families. Um, and so um, it was the first time that I had um, heard somebody formally go into some of the research and um, statistics. Um, I remember sitting in that seminar and they talked about there being this multi-heritage family conference where you know, she described, because she was also in a uh, multi-heritage relationship, she talked about it was such a unique experience for her family to go because, um, you know, culturally in error, we look at families and look for people who look alike. And so all the families that would walk up the steps to this, you know, venue and to this conference um, visually um, represented this multi-heritage, multi-racial experience within the family. And she said it was just this really sweet experience for her. Um, and then more recent, um, I've been such a big fan of Emmanuel Acho's um, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And he um, probably, uh, he put out a call at one point for, you know, what else do you want us to talk about on here? And I sent in, I want to hear about, you know, they did an episode on interracial marriages and relationships, but I really wanted to hear more about the family um, context, even beyond that, where children are involved. And so um, we just had a real big heart to be a part of that conversation. Um and are so privileged uh, to have you guys um, participate in that with us. Both Kimberly and I um, are in interracial relationships. And though we discuss this together in an effort to foster a more complex dialogue with various vantage points and experiences, we wanted to have on this conversation 
um, with, uh, with somebody else and um, have a greater dialogue and invite more people to talk about this because there are some unique intricacies and nuances in, in this dynamic. Tell us a little bit about um, how you met your husbands. Katrina, I know you kind of noted it a little bit in meeting in college, but just um, how you met, um, kind of the start of your journey. We'll get into some of the um, history and experiences since you've been married, but you know, how'd you meet? Um, where'd you meet? What was that like? Give us a little bit of, of background and, and um, information about your marriages. So I met Andrew, my husband, on my first English classes at Laterno. Um, at, in my very first class, my 815 history class with Dr. Durham. It's a wonder I stayed awake even that first day. <laughs> um, but I, what I remember about the day that <clears throat> I met him was um, that he... Okay, so you know how like the first day of classes, teachers have you go around and say something about yourself, right? So I remember Andrew sitting by the window and I don't remember if he was one of the first people or one of the last, but I remember immediately noticing his English accent. And as a young woman who was brought up on a lot of romantic comedies and fully bought in to the, the beauty that is the male British accent, I was like, sir, you have my attention. And <laughs> so, and again, being the, the, um, the awkward minister of awkwardness that I am, I feigned an interest in something he said he was a part of, which was the school paper. So Andrew was editor of the school paper. So after class, I was sure to go up to him and say, hey, I want to write for the paper, even though I was not even that interested in the paper, girl. Um, <laughs> so we actually, so we dated we actually, we did not date for the first two years that we knew each other because while he was editor of the paper, every other week when the paper came out, I was angry. Like, I thought he was cute the whole time, but it would make me so angry that he actually had the nerve to edit my stuff. Like, really? <laughs> you don't change words? Really? It's like that? Um, so we actually did not start dating until my junior year of college um, when he was no longer editor of the paper. And he asked me out to symphony because, you know, Kimberly, Katrina, y'all remember that symphony culture, like going to somebody, going with somebody to symphony wasn't necessarily a thing. Um, but after symphony was over, he asked me if I wanted to go and like have dinner at the same restaurant as the other people on his floor or just go somewhere else that was just the two of us, which literally was right across the street because long we did not have that many restaurants at the time. <laughs> like Chili's or Applebee's. <laughs> and I was like, let's do Chili's. <laughs> and the rest is history so that was let's see we started dating in 02 um we were married the following year in 03 um a week after he graduated because he graduated in december of 03 um and uh, you know and now 16 and a half and three quarters years later here we are So for the um, listeners who do not come from the history of Longview, can someone please enlighten us on what we are referring to when we talk about symphony? Because I'm not familiar. Oh. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So I don't think it's as big a deal uh, now at Letourneau as it was when we were there 20 years ago. Um, but symphony, like, I mean, it's just our local symphony orchestra. 
And, um, but they would have their concerts like, you know, once every month or every couple of months. And it was an, a, like the only excuse that we girls had to go to Goodwill or a Hope's Closet and, and find a fancy dress that we could actually afford or go to dealers and hit those Saturday morning sales, which we would pile into somebody's car and do. Um, it, was, it was just a good excuse to get dressed up and actually go someplace because at our Christian university in our smaller than, I would say, East Texas City, like there just, there wasn't a lot for us to do because we weren't allowed to go out and like drink and party, right? Um, so Symphony, it, it was like our social occasion to go off campus. Okay. But these days, they have the Belcher Center on campus, so they don't even go off campus for that anymore, I don't think. Yeah, there were there were two events that would start a courtship because that's what it was, right? <laughs> Symphony or Fall Fest? I'm, I'm experiencing so much pain right now. <laughs> you have started your romantic life together at Symphony or Fall Fest. That's, that's usually the origin story for most couples in Longview, Texas at our university. So this is hilarious. <laughs> I love, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's like that private university element. That's, that's real strong right now in the conversation, but it's just that, that small university element. Like there's so many unique things to that culture where it was like, what 70% male to, you know, whatever was left was female. So, I mean, it was, it was hard. It was, it was rough time. So I'm impressed that, you know, both of you met in college. <laughs> Karita, I second your affinity for the English accent. I would have, I would have been, you know, um, I would have been attracted to that as well. I was just like, when I meet people with that accent, I'm like, just keep talking. You can say anything. I just want you to talk to me. It's just so delightful. Um, I am finding more and more in common with you as you tell your story. Uh, my husband is an English major. Um, taught he's he's now a little bit over a decade into teaching was the editor for his paper so just so much about y'all's story yes yes y'all would probably click with Blaine um, because you have so much in common Katrina give us I know you um you guys met in college but just a little bit of your origin story and yeah now you said that wasn't your hope to meet in college and then you know no. it happened well, I feel like, again, this, the small private Christian university, like the, the MRS degree is very popular choice. And I was the, I don't want to say snooty. I, that's not the right word, but I was the ha half rebel who was like, I'm here to get a real degree. <laughs> um, so I actually didn't meet, I thought I knew every guy in the college. Um, I didn't spent some time and effort on some guys that were not worth that um, time and effort. And then I got a job at the campus coffee shop and that was the cool place to work, or at least it felt, and I really loved it fed into my extrovert personality. And yeah, I had a good time. Well, in walks this really good looking guy that I'd never seen before and a little bit of personal history. I've always said that I think um, if I were to date a white guy, he would have dark hair and dark eyes because I think guys, white guys with blonde hair and blue eyes are funny looking. Um, I've always thought that. <laughs> and in walks this blonde haired, blue eyed guy that was really cute. And he had on an awful shirt. It was a, 
velour-ish <laughs> like button down the the buttons were cat eye shaped no and they had short it was a short sleeve button down which I personally take issue with anyway um and then it was velour and it 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 was like iridescent, but it was like a navy gold eggplant forest green iridescent. And so every time he moved, it was a different color. And I was like, okay, hate the shirt, love the face. The shoes are too big. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a crystal clear picture you are casting for the listeners. <laughs> anyway, we were, uh, we had a mutual friend who happened to be in the coffee shop. She introduced us. She's a dear friend of mine to this day. Um, we met we hung out funnily enough I think this is worth noting in this particular conversation um we were getting to know each other weren't dating yet and I found out he was from Alabama and my own preconceived notions of Alabama and in my head I remember having a distinct thought I was like oh no like they don't do nice things to brown girls in Alabama like that's not a thing and so in my head I was like well it's nice knowing you but yeah this is like that's the end of this we were in taco bueno actually because you know we're not as high class as chilies but <laughs> doing the best we can I, i'm just kidding um anyway so i found out i found that out and i was like ooh, I, ooh like that that might be a no-go for me and then come to find out that's like yes he's from alabama but it doesn't mean what i i felt like it meant and so anyway we were dating a month later um we dated throughout as I finished my degree and I went to Waco to start grad school at Baylor and he finished school really quickly because he had no intentions of graduating um he was either gonna just stay at Laternal till he got till he got a degree or ran out of money so I was like, well, I'm going to grad school, have a nice life. And he was like, oh, crap. So he finished school really quickly, graduated, got a job in Waco. We got engaged and we dated for almost three years before we were married um, and got married in Waco. Um, so that was 13 years ago. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's about, that's that's the gist. Wow. I'd like to get... Um some feedback and a sense from you guys on um, terminology. I think um, specifically, how do you prefer to refer to race and ethnicity diversity within your marriage? For a lot of folks, um, the terms are different. There, there's a felt sense, there's a, a preference um, of that, you know, whether it be uh, inter-ethnic, mixed race, mixed heritage, interracial, uh, multi-ethnic, um, and just, I think uh, there's a lot of um, meaning for folks as to how they refer to their marriage. And um, the term has um, a lot of um, value for them. And so I think one, as we have the conversation wanting to honor you guys in that, but then, um, you know, being able to even bring up that conversation, because I think sometimes for a lot of folks, it's what, what term is appropriate? What do folks prefer? What, um, what, even that journey and even making that decision, was it, was it something that was just, we always knew we've always said it this way. This is just where we are. Um, has it been a process? Um, and then kind of where did you land? 
Can I also add, would you guys nuance how you would um, describe yourself and identify yourself and like how uh, your husbands and your children and things like that? Because I think that's a part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially since they can't see us, right? <laughs> so, um, so I am Black. Um, I When I'm writing, I tend to refer to myself as Black American. Um, I don't usually use African American, although I don't, I'm not bothered by that uh, terminology. Um, but I tend to refer to myself as Black American. Um, and my husband is English. Um, and he's, he's white English, not Black English, because there are Black people who are English. Um, yeah, I also, I don't know. My current favorite descriptor of my, my race or culture is Black and Black. Um, it's kind of just a, a like a, it's something I've come to in my probably, I guess, mid to getting into late 30s because I'm 38 now. Um, so, I mean, people listening can hear my voice and maybe at this point in 2020, they don't have a preconceived notion of what a black woman might sound like, quote. Um, however, growing up, I was given a lot of shit um, for talking like this. And even at Laterno where there were so few black people like we literally would sometimes just all sit at the same table in the cafeteria just to be with each other. And like, if our friends tried to sit with us, we would tell them they had to not, and they'd had to take their little hurt feelings and go somewhere because we were not babysitting them at that moment because we needed each other. Katrina knows what I'm talking about. Um, yes, for the listener, there are head nods. <laughs> yes. Um, but like, for real, sometimes we would unmute and just make all the sounds I'm making but I'm saying like there were times when we would go into the cafeteria and we would like we had a system we would make a fist and point to a booth and we would just have our time um because we needed we needed each other um but it's but being married to a white man and also um having children who are interracial which is how I refer to them but I'm sure we'll get to that later um I I have struggled with being seen as being black enough. Um, and it's not something that I ever doubted in my own family. Like growing up, my family never made me feel like I wasn't black. I was raised around black people because my, both my parents are black. All our family members are black. Um, and yet when I would go outside my house, like growing up in, growing up and going to school in South Dallas and Oak Cliff and Pleasant Grove, predominantly, um, at, at, when I was growing up, predominantly black areas of the town, it's not the, quite the same right now. Thank you, gentrification. Um, I would struggle with other people putting their sense of what black culture was supposed to look like, like imputing that onto me and telling me that what I was was trying to be something I wasn't. Um, and so it's been within the past few years that I've accepted that I'm black because I'm black. And if it doesn't look black enough for someone else, it's not my problem. Um, so blackity black is my current favorite, favorite descriptor. It's probably in my Twitter bio. Um, and I, so as far as like referring to our marriage though, I honestly, this was a good question for me because I've never questioned, um, I've never really, really pushed at it. It hasn't been a, a descriptor that I've thought about too much. Um, I think of us as being in an interracial marriage, but like, when I'm talking to other people about my husband, um, I just, if I mention his, that he's not black at all, I say, oh yeah, my husband's white. Or, you know, I just show people a picture of our family. Um, 
I don't usually actually think of a descriptor to put on our relationship. Um, I actually, and this is kind of a, a different, like a gender norm-based conversation. For a while, I um, I did not at all care for, care to think of him as my husband. I prefer to think of him as a partner. Um, and even now, when I refer to him, um, I refer to him as like my pumpkin or my honey bun. Like it's like, you can kind of tell how, like who I'm having conversations with by how I refer to him as, as the person I'm married to. Like if it's somebody who's an acquaintance or somebody I've just met, I'll say husband, but generally that's not how I refer to him at all anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's more information than you asked for. No, that's exactly what we're asking for. Uh, I can, I mean, I'm happy I'm going after Karita on this because I feel like she I mean, cannot, she nailed it. She nailed it perfectly with just the speaking and the, um, yeah, how you speak, that is a, a big thing. And a lot of our story is very similar in um, enunciation and being not quite black enough or being seen as mm, I struggle with how to say what I'm trying to say, but, um, yeah, a lot of my story is very similar in that because I talk the way that I do. And because I have the hair type that I do, that I must not be quite black enough, which again, I can completely identify with within my family, which is black. Um, I was always just me and I was always just, that wasn't, that wasn't it consideration in my family unit outside of my family unit at home prior to college I was not quite black enough but then I was black so I didn't really fit in with the white girls um and of course now I mean made friends and it was all fine but in in school they were all uh, my friends were diverse and there were not a lot of black friends because very early on I was it was decided for me that I was not black enough and so that's kind of been something that has stayed with me my entire life um what was the question how do you um oh marriage yes what what terms feel right for you you know right I apologize your husband your kids and y'all's relationships Right. Okay. Back on track. So I, Jason and I, I, we, I say that we are an interracial, we're in an interracial marriage. I also say mixed race. I think I call my kids mixed race um, and, and, or interracial. Um, but yeah, that's what we call ourselves. I think for us, there's, which Karita, I'm sure you can identify with, there's an equal bit of inner cultural because he is super southern and I'm super Texan and so Karita's got the American versus English <laughs> yeah um, yeah <laughs> we're gonna circle back to that one yeah yes, we'll put a pin in that one and come back around but yeah so mm-hmm. I, I like it and this is just me and my story and my marriage but I feel like the interracial is a large chunk but the intercultural is is equally so like it's a big it's a big thing for us um and so but yeah in terms of names or what I would call 
us as a couple, I say my or interracial marriage or my husband's white and he'll say my wife is black. And that's just kind of what we say. Um, there was something else I wanted to say about that. Oh, I was going to say also that I actually have my, my racial background or my, I'm, I call myself black. Um, I went with the other for a really long time and it never quite felt comfortable. I'm, I call myself black. Um, I have the older I've gotten and the more comfortable I've gotten with myself and my racial heritage. I, um, have explored a lot of, I have a lot, a lot of American Indian in me and some black that goes back to the slave owner slave relationship. And that's a lot of my heritage and on both sides, my both sides of my parents, there's a lot of straight American Indian and there's a lot of pride in that. Um, Mm. But in terms of what I call myself now, I just say black, I identify most with the black culture um I consider myself to be black and that's just the easiest way to say it um so it's been really cool to find the freedom in exploring what my racial heritage actually is and how it all kind of combines to make me me and my family history um but in terms of just meeting people you know when you're not having that whole conversation (laughs) I'm just black or you could just guess from what I mean you could just look at the brown skin and come to that conclusion although at Laterno I got Samoan what um I mean I got <laughs> Kimberly <laughs> for the listeners there's lots of faces on, lots, on the screen I know. I, we were like doing a vlog <laughs> or something yeah I got Samoan I mean I got under uh, under the sun I was like I'm literally just in Texas y'all like that's it Oh, did you get told you weren't from Texas? Because I straight up got questions. Okay, so for context, um, Jenna, I have never lived anywhere but Texas. I have only traveled outside the country to visit the family that I married into. Like, I am a Texan, right? Um, Most of my extended family is in Texas. Like, there's a few cousins up in, like, Iowa, like, maybe one in Kansas. Um, But everybody's here. Everybody's here. And so going to Laterno where there's not a lot of black people, there's also, they, at, our, at that time, there weren't a ton of Texans. Um, a lot, like Laterno would draw a lot of missionary kids from out of the country and a lot of um, really conservative, uh, conservatively brought up kids from in the country who wanted to be engineers or flight majors because Laterno had that as a huge focus, right? Um and so, yeah, I would definitely get told, like, not only did I not sound black enough, but apparently I couldn't possibly just be from Dallas. Like, really? <laughs> That's not okay. Um, it's okay. This is a good opportunity um, to, because the listeners are still getting to know us and um, as human beings and people. And so uh, tell a little bit uh, why this topic is so near and dear to um, our heart. And uh, I'll, I'll start. So um, I am married to a man that would identify as mixed race. Um, and, and I will tell you, part of our story was uh, we've been married for um, a little over 12 years. And our story is, you know, 
my desire to honor him in the language um, that I would use to describe our relationship and him and, and whatnot. And the reality is, is it's changed over the years. So when we got married, he identified as a black man. Um, and he had kind of explained that he really, the, the word African-American didn't feel right for him. So some of the things that you guys were talking about. And so he would always describe himself as a black man. When I married him, although across our dating, at one point he had a fro, at one point, most of our dating, he was bald. Um, because he is half black, half white, which is how he would describe himself. It really depends on what he would do with his hair, how people saw him. If, um, if he was shaved his head and was bald or had picked it out into a fro, he was clearly black to everybody. If he, um, he has these just incredible tight curls, um, if it was short and showed the curl or long with the curl, he got um, told that he was like Brazilian at times or just a whole slew of things. So it really depends on how he um, did his hair and styled his hair what people would guess about him. But um, when we first got married, um, Blaine identified as a black man. Um, and it was actually through the early years of our marriage. I told him, cause him and I talked about this before I, I came on the podcast, um, that it was, I think about our second or third year of marriage, that it was the first time the census had come out for us as a young couple. And while there probably had technically been other opportunities, that was one of the pivotal ones in our marriage and in his young adult life where he was allowed to check multiple boxes as his identity as a mixed race person. Um, and then as we were getting ready to have kids, just culturally, logistically, things like the census. And then as we were getting ready to have what we knew would be mixed race babies, he leaned further and further into identifying as mixed race. Um, and he, and he would say it's because he had permission you know, it, it was into his adult years that he had permission to do that um, and, and have a confidence and um, an affection for that part of his story. And so um, that's a little bit about my marriage. Um, we refer to our marriage as interracial. He refers to himself as biracial or mixed race. And then we refer to our children the same way. Um, so yeah, that's, that's us. And I... Um... I'm married to my lovely husband, Carlos, who is Hispanic. Um, and um, mom's, his mom's heritage is um, Mexican. Um, so deep, deep roots in Mexico and then dad in Spain. And so um, that the Latinx culture just running through and through. Um, we... Um, he is a lighter skinned Hispanic. And so uh, some of the things that um, Katrina and Carita were, were describing, the, the very different, um, many times he is not um, dark enough <laughs> to be considered um, Hispanic. Um, and um, which, you know, as we get further into the conversation and kind of talk about our, our experiences as a couple um, kind of has led to y'all well then y'all aren't really an interracial couple um in fact I vividly remember a story being schooled um in a church setting by a white woman about what we were and were not <laughs> um because it was um loving day you know the day that inter interracial marriage and, and I had said something about that and just 
the appreciation for it and just celebrating it and kind of told that I wasn't allowed to do that again by, by a white woman, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think um, we would personally choose interracial. Um, I've, I've gotten some pushback that um, that might, it would technically be interethnic or um, multi-heritage. And, and I, would, I would say, yes, that's true. There are, um, there is the race piece and then there is the cultural piece. <laughs> and um, we, we've all alluded to, there, there are some dynamics there and I'll definitely uh, get into those um, in a little bit where we have the cultural differences that show up. So multicultural family for sure. Um, but, but very much identify as um, interracial. Um, and, but, but still, I think both he and I, even talking over the last couple of days, as I talked about um, approaching this podcast, you know, and just even still wrestling and some of it, and I hear it in, in y'all's description as well, not, not having the freedom to just go, this is how we identify. This is what we choose, <laughs> you know, going, oh, it's, it's the feedback from other people saying, well, this is, these are your boxes or these are their categorical um, words that you're allowed to use or not use. And, and the, the tension there um, versus the freedom just to say, as we've sat with it, this is what we identify um, as. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about us. So we'd like to jump straight in and um, just ask, you know, what challenges have you faced related to being in an interracial marriage? Specifically, the marriage will kind of get into the family, because I think those are two separate conversations. I do not think they are the same thing. They are contextual and and impact each other. But we're going to kind of start in the marriage bucket. Um, Presently, historically, what are the big pieces that stick out to you in your story? I don't know that we've had like a ton of challenges related to being just married to each other. I really have to think on that one. Like, uh, I don't know. Like we've had, okay, so you guys are sex therapists, so I'll just be honest. (laughs) There are maybe a couple of things that I would share in a not recorded setting. (laughs) But, um, I don't, I don't know that like, that like racially my being black and his being white just within our marriage between the two of us has been much of a, a challenge on its, on its own. Now, when you get into the family part, that's different. Yeah. One of the things when we, I sat in that doc seminar was um, what the research was showing. And this is at the time, and it's been a minute since I've been in that seminar and they did that research is that interracial marriages a vast majority, they look just like other marriages. And so some of the myth is that there's, there's some crazy dynamic. Um, but I think what they said, if my memory serves me well, is that when you, it's when it gets contextual. So when it's between the two people, it's the same marriage challenges that a lot of people face. Um, but it's when you start having social context, family context, cultural context, things like that, that where it starts to show some, some different experiences. Uh, what about you, Katrina? Like just the marriage, the, you two, the interracial dynamic. Well, I was thinking about it in the interracial dynamic. I, I definitely agree with what Karita said. I didn't, it's always just been me and Jason. And so there hasn't been this, um, hey, you're white. So let's talk about whatever you know like there have been an abundance of jokes based on stereotypes within the marriage of like you know 
he'll at he if I'm sick and he asks me he go, I'm like I need you to go to this store and he and I say I need you to get Gatorade and he's like well, what flavors do you want and I say red orange blue you know and he's like that you know and that's just a very stereotypical tiny slice between like black culture versus white culture um and you know so there will be laughter about that um I did think again for us it's been the culture you know our our separate cultures um and not regarding race regarding location geography um have been those have led to a lot of the deeper more um robust things that we've had to work through in our marriage um less about the color of our skin I did ask him one time if having pink skin was painful and he was like does it hurt to be brown and I was like no but it just looks like it would hurt to be pink he was like no (laughs) it doesn't and I was like okay just checking um anyway (laughs) um and then I actually had the thought that really within the past four years um when a lot of the killings of black men just in streets of America happened and we had um Trayvon Martin and Philando Castile and Eric Garner and all these names start coming up um that was when there was a lot of a journey that happened for me personally where I um worked through a lot of the things that Karita mentioned earlier just like my blackness and all of that kind of stuff and um I had to figure out where, not where I stood. That's not the the question is not where do I stand on the killings of black people? Like that's a given, but less of that and more of just like, how does that affect my identity and my blackness and my black journey? And what does that look like? And what do I do if I'm out with my kids on the streets and they see me as a threat and I'm killed in front of my little mixed race babies. Like just kind of working through all of that. And Jason had a very, I will be honest, he had a very different perspective. And so there were a lot of really difficult conversations that we've had. Um, I'm thankful for those conversations, to be honest, because I feel like it has helped me to be so much more confident and so much more clear and so much more, um, I'm good on where I stand. I, I, I know how I feel. I know what I think. I feel good about that. And I have had it challenged by my husband and it has, and I have challenged his way of thinking and his view. And we have had to have hard conversations and walk away and come back. And over years, it's been a, it's been a year's process of us coming together and meeting kind of in the middle where there's an obvious, again, (laughs) lives being lost in the street, black lives specifically, but lives period is that, I mean, that's a non-negotiable obviously, but I'm just talking about the nuances of it and how it relates into how it relates to so many other aspects of our lives. Um, There've just been some really difficult conversations. I think that that has been, now kind of looking back I really I'm thankful for it because I think that it's helped me to be a lot more solid on where I stand and and what I think and how I view the world and I think that he has also grown and learned a lot 
Um, but I would say really in the, in the past four years, it's been, there's been a lot more of those kinds of conversations where like, Hey, I'm black, you're white. There's obviously some things we need to work through, like talk about have come up when, when, when it became a lot more, um, and a lot, a lot more obvious in our society. I think prior to that, it was just kind of a, we had situations in Texas where people looked at a stranger, he felt threatened, like he had to protect me in a situation because we were in a really small town in Texas or Louisiana where they don't take kindly to that kind of stuff. So um, we've had those experiences. They didn't, ha they weren't a they weren't um, predominant, I guess, in our memories. They, they're there. Um, but again, I think for us, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of working through um, in the past four years or so related to race and how that looks at our marriage and how we raise our children and what we believe and just a lot of stuff. So what I hear in that is just that, and, and that was as you were talking, Katrina, the personal journey that you're going on and how that um, intersects with your marriage and your relationship and having those hard conversations. So I'd like to go there for a little bit. And this is for either one of you, but I'd love to hear your personal experience and process, Karita, um, as you go through, you know, just personal processes and journeys and challenges um, as black women, um, how that showed up in your marriage, what those conversations look like, where that got challenging. Um, because th that's, that's what I'm hearing you bring up, Katrina. It was less between the two of you than, than to Jenna's earlier point, when it gets contextual, when mm. there is stuff happening in our world and mm. around us, um, how those conversations show up in, in your marriage and that parallel between personal and um, partnership and the conversations and challenges and, and what that's looked like for, for you ladies. So for me, I'm very much a verbal processor, right? Um, as part of my spiritual gift of awkwardness, um, <laughs> it happens, right? And so like, I mean, there'll be times when Andrew and I get our wires crossed because one of us didn't tell the other person something. Like, for example, <laughs> he invited friends over for lunch today and was like offering to, to have our friend who's coming over bring me something I could eat later. He didn't realize I was off today. I didn't realize he was off today. But <laughs> when it comes to like those bigger things that like I'm going through within, almost without fail, I... I have to talk through it with him um, or at least around him, like to my bestie or to my mom or someone. I, I have to talk through it before it even makes sense in my own head. So what that amounts to is um, like, even if he doesn't necessarily understand where I land, he knows what I've been thinking and won't be surprised by it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so early on in our conversation, and I think this was just by, not our conversation, in our relationship, um, I think this was by virtue of my, um, my gift of awkwardness, as well as the place that we, where we met being so uh, unique in its culture, and yet also emblematic of a larger 
currently disintegrating evangelical culture. <laughs> like, um, I was very honest with him. So for context, Andrew and I have never dated anybody but each other. So we are like first everything. And so what for me, what that meant was because I had been told, and this goes into some tropes that, that may play into the marriage challenges too. Um, for me, having been told as a younger uh, teenager who was just boy crazy as F y'all, just I liked me some boys. Um, not a single boy was checking for me. And I got told often that it was because I was intimidating, which I thought and um, still think is trash. <laughs> I just think, I think it's trash. Um, because I'm not an intimidating, like I, like if someone is intimidated by me, it's because of their own life experiences, not because I'm actively intimidating them. Um, but anyhow, I had insecurities about whether or not a man could actually be attracted to me for who I was. And so early in our relationship, everything just came out. I was like, well, I mean, it's lasted this long. It's probably not going to last too much longer. So I better just go ahead and level with you. Like, this is, this is where I am. This is what I'm thinking. This is how I feel. And none of that changes. Um, and of course, sometimes it does change, but I was much more opinionated when I was younger, if you can believe it. And so um, I'm sure Kimberly remembers that version of me well. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> I've actually mellowed out some, if you can believe it. <laughs> but, Age um, does that, man. Age does It does. That. It does. So all of that to say, like, as far as when, like, when we have talked about a shifting political climate or, like, cultural changes and changes in how the church um, embraces or rejects certain groups of people, especially with LGBTQ things, we have sort of evolved in our thinking and beliefs together on that because it's always a running dialogue. Um, so I think that was a very long answer, but I think I, I think I got to, to what you're saying, didn't I? Yeah, you did, Karita. And I, I appreciate what you're talking about is, is that um, it sounds like, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys had a I don't know, a foundational level of safety where you could do that out loud with each other. Um, and a part of your personality being extroverted, which I identify with um, personally, is that I needed I needed to be able to talk out loud about that. I would say that my husband and I also had that. It's been this evolution over time as we both learn together how to kind of honor each other um, and, and have these conversations. And I would say pretty early on in our marriage, like we discuss like, conversations are going to be the key to our journey and our health and being able to um, really give God glory in our relationship. Um, all that is what we consider beautiful about being in an interracial marriage and, and family. So um, no, I, I really do love that. Uh, you are talking and I'm going, Oh, I like this girl. I'm mad so much. I, I don't know if you're into the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram eight. I'm a social eight. And so Okay, six. Yes, six. six. Okay. I am, yes. So I, I forget what my wing is because if I whatever the extroverted wing is, I have that. Because like I am a hermit, a curmudgeon, an introvert. Like that is who I am. <laughs> um, like I really have to be in my element in order to be open with people. Yeah. Like if I'm in any way insecure about my surroundings, like I'm just, you won't hear from me. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a six. I'm a six. When you said that, like, I'm just finding someone who can, who can, um, my words, not yours, like handle you, you know, like, the, you, like not being too much. I remember feeling that way also. So 
Um, I, yeah, I, and it's again, it's like like really like I really handle myself. I like, know, I know, I really do. But like, I navigate all of this. These other people can deal. <laughs> Katrina, um, curious um, about about the contextual experience for you guys. Let's take it there. You so beautifully bridged that conversation to that that place. I'm going. I'm going to a spot where I can sit and talk again. You're great. Um. So, I feel like. Sorry. Give me a minute. Okay. Um. Yeah. I feel like Jason and I. We didn't really struggle with the context that much because we went from Waco, which was a little smaller, I guess. Um, so we went from Longview to Waco to Houston. And um, I think there might have been a little bit of surprise in Waco when Jason's like, yeah, I'm marrying a black girl. Um, but then once we got to Houston... It was just, I mean, it wasn't a thing at all. Like it was, we lived in a big city, Houston, Fort Bend County, which is where I actually went to grade school and like graduated from high school, recently became the most diverse county in the country anywhere. Like I think, I want to say two years ago, maybe it was named the most diverse county. And so what I was used to going back to Houston was not a... It just wasn't a thing really like it it interracial couple was it just wasn't really an issue um I think that when we kind of revisited or when we were dating and we would meet up and like one time we went to an Applebee's and we met halfway between Longview and Houston which we should have known that that just from the jump was like not a good idea create it yes exactly like yee. Um, we should have known it wasn't a good idea. We met in an Applebee's of all places. And um, we walked in and one side of the restaurant was all white eating. And one side of the restaurant was all black eating. They were separated by the bar in the middle. Wow. And um, the restaurant was like, it had ambient noise because people were talking. I mean, it got silent. And the way the hostess just looked at us, she was like, she didn't, I don't even think she said anything or she might have asked if we wanted a table. I don't know, but the restaurant got silent. And Jason will tell you that he is not great with context clues. <laughs> he's a big extra introvert. He's a big <laughs> introvert. And he just is like, he's never really been the best at like social cues. And he's and he says, he's like, even that time I got it. He was like, even I got it that time. Um, and so we just walked out. Like it was, there was nowhere for us to sit. We could tell that the restaurant you could just feel this like tension in the air um and we have a few stories like that there's not an abundance of them thankfully just because like I said living in Houston um but then again the context of the past several years has been um you know that's that's brought a lot of oh there's been a lot of necessary conversations because I think we've all been married I would say what like you know, we're into, we're into the, our marriages, you know, not newly married by any stretch. Um, and so just you grow into the people that you are, you get older, sharp edges get softened, you get 
more solidified in your opinions and the way you see the world and the way you see yourself. And so um, all of that to say that I think that there had been some change happening prior to, you know, 2016 when everything, and it was happening before then, but that was just when it felt like everything just kind of got really intense. And so um, there had been change happening in myself and in Jason and then having those conversations where it's kind of like, Hey, I, I'm meeting you to have this conversation as my spouse and I'm receiving from you different feedback than what I realized I was going to receive from you or what I expected I was going to receive from you because we each had our own, you know, we'd been forming opinions all that time and hadn't really felt like there, there wasn't a need to talk about it really, because it was just kind of like, well, we're just living our lives. There were lots of other things that we were focused on. Um, so yeah, anyway, I want to pause because there was something else I wanted to say about all of that. Um, oh, going back to the whole, like solidifying who you are and all that kind of stuff. I also, um, think that as I got older, I became a lot more comfortable in my blackness and more comfortable in, who um, I am as a black woman. I think that Laterno was very damaging for me in that regard. Um, I think I was in a, I was very vulnerable to that type of damage prior to coming to Laterno because I had bought into this lie that uh, a lot of the, the Eurocentric um, and culturally Christian definitions of beauty and a desirable woman and Christianity. Um, I was walking back up, but Karita, I heard you kind of touch on that as well. And so I was went into Laterno as this 17-year-old kid thinking that I needed to straighten my hair to be seen as attractive. And I needed to lose weight because I was too curvy. Well, that's that's what the ancestors gave me. Okay. So this big booty and these boobs are not going anywhere. It doesn't matter if I'm, you know, it doesn't matter what size, but anyway, feeling that that wasn't good enough because it wasn't this stick skinny, whatever thing. And that my curly hair was not made me less attractive. And Karita, you kind of touched on this too, but like, I'm, I'm just loud. <laughs> It's just, I just am. And so, you know, thinking I was supposed to be this demure, quiet, meek person. And that's just not, so I spent a lot of time denying who I actually am and who I, who I was at the time to try to be something that could be seen as desirable for friendships, for boys, for dating, for all of it in the church, just to be respected and somebody that somebody would want to spend time with there was a lot of that happening at Laterno and I and I mean the honest truth now looking back is that I was not in a place where I was ready to be confident in who I actually am and who God made me to be but at the same time then entering into a a, a, a cultural climate like or a, a place like where we went to school um it just made it that much worse and so instead of realizing that hey you know what that's my environment and it's not true. It's not a good reflection of who I am. It was more of, I'm broken, I'm wrong. There's something wrong with me that needs to be fixed. And if I could just be more of these things, 
which it didn't, it took years later for me to realize that those were, um, you know, that's, that's the definition of Eurocentric culture and Eurocentric beauty and a faith that is Eurocentric. Um, and it took a long time for me to have words to, to say that and, and an actual definition to, to support what, what I experienced. Um, but there were many, many years in the, I guess, you know, using context and speaking to context, cultural context, where I felt like I needed to be more white to be more accepted. And um, that was not true at all. Um, and then meeting Jason, he, again, kind of like what Karita said, he was one of the first white guys, 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 A, white guys, because I did date somebody prior to that at Laterno who told me that um, we could no longer date because interracial dating is unbiblical and his parents told him that. Um, so that was part of my experience. And so again, you know, if I could just be less, if I could just be less loud or if I could just be skinnier, if I, my hair could just be a little bit straighter, I would be accepted, you know, and that's anyway. So Jason comes into the picture and he's like, I see you. I like what I see. I want to stick around. And so, you know, we built this marriage together and, and that was kind of, he was the first person I think um, outside of my family to, to step into my life, especially in a dating scenario where he was like, I'm just interested because of who you are, you know? And it took a lot of time to heal and it took a lot of time to A, heal from that and B, learn to love what I, I already love, but like name the bad parts and name the things that were damaging and start to cut those away and then get into celebrating what has always been and what has always been worth celebration. Um, so anyway, that was kind of a long-winded answer, but I hope, okay. I hope that's what you're looking for. <laughs> for. For the listeners, when you started telling your story about interracial dating and marriages being, I was having a silent, emotive conniption on this side of the screen. So I am that, that stuff. I just have such little tolerance for, um, so thankful, uh, in both of your stories for, um, two husbands that were a part of speaking different truths into y'all's lives. I really am. Um, I really am thankful for those men and I've never met them. Um, we are going to go into the cultural stuff more. So I'm, I'm like <laughs> the tension of which direction to go. Both of you though mentioned that within family, that context, um, there was, yeah. Oh, okay. There's, there's also emoting happening for the listeners <laughs> with the faces. I think this is a big part of it. So I'd love to, um, don't, doesn't matter who wants to jump in first. I know that that, um, is true for most people in interracial relationships, like how, how family interacted, impacted um, those conversations. Would love to go there for a minute. So I'm going to return to something Katrina talked about earlier when she was mentioning Philando Castile and Eric Garner um, and accepting her blackness, like as being black enough, right? 
for me, I had a moment like that um, when the Charleston Annie um, church shooting happened. And we woke up the next morning and Dale Roof still had not been apprehended. And then when he was, he was taken to Burger King. <laughs> like, not only was he peaceably apprehended, um, not a scratch on it, but took him to get a meal before he had to, to go to jail. And then I remember, too, um, a big picture of him, very sympathetic looking. I mean, he looked like a, he's a baby-faced kid um, with a lot of hate in his heart. Um, but a big picture of him running next to uh, a very sympathetic headline in the New York Times. Um, something that amounted to, like, not only a killer or more than that or something like that. And this was a man who who went into this church, premeditated, sat among these people while they were starting their Bible study, um, was welcomed in, and then assassinated them. Um, it was a moment for me. So what happened, and this is where it connects to the family piece, um, Andrew and I were on the same page regarding this shit. Like we, we talk all the time, or to be, to be more accurate, I talk all the time. Um, Andrew is a bit of an onion, like, but, but he listens well. And, um, but his, so his parents happened to be in town when that happened. Um, before the pandemic, they came to visit us probably every couple of years, year and a half, something like that. So they were with us. Um, and of course it was part of our conversation. I had a stomach ache for like a week straight. Like I, I just, I held that stress in my stomach. And um, what I remember is my father-in-law seeing, because, you know, older people, especially your news junkies, um, and he came across a BBC headline, and it was a picture of family members and friends and congregants of those who had been killed holding hands and praying before Dylan Roof was apprehended. Um, and someone was quoted as having saying they had already forgiven him, which is there, that's their grief, that's their moment. I, I have no critique of someone else's emotions in the face of such a tragedy. What I did critique though, um, was that my father-in-law at that moment, like many other people, white and black, um, was sort of lifting that up as a picture of what real Christians should do, what, what, what faith should look like. Um, and there are people who have explored this topic and can state it better than I can, that there is a huge problem with a culture that uplifts Black suffering and forgiveness um, and does not join us in Black pain. And um, again, there are people who've written whole books about it. In fact, Sharon Risher um, was related to several of the people who were killed that day, and she's written a whole book about um, about her own journey to a version of forgiveness that does not, that is not exclusive to pursuing justice, right? Um, so, but for me, that was a moment, like I didn't go to church that Sunday, um, didn't, I think my kids might've gone, but um, I just, you know, my parents are a little bit confused, um, but I just, what I realized was that if I went to church and someone with nefarious intent came into that church, they wouldn't be taking everybody out, but they would be looking for me. There would be like maybe two or three people they'd be looking for, and I would be one of them. 
Um, and it really was the first time I didn't feel safe in, in, in that kind of setting. Um, that has been, so what's happened for, for me theologically as I've shifted over the years because my faith is a very important part of who I am. Um, what's happened for me is that I've become much more inclusive in my theology and what I have observed in, in my uh, English part of the family is that they're a few years behind the progressive movement in the States. So there are conversations just now happening on a large scale in that country that the Episcopal Church, for example, was having when Gene Robinson was confirmed uh, upwards of 10 years ago. So where I have come into, what I've had, where I've had struggles with some members of that side of the family, um, it's around politics and it's around theology. Um, I just find a lot of times that a very cerebral theology that has to have a definite scriptural basis for everything is very biblicist and I am very not. Um, the Bible is important and meaningful and spirit breathed, but it is not the beginning and end of my faith um, because my experience can inform what I believe and how I interpret what I'm reading, right? That's how it's alive. And so for some people that's basically heresy. Um, and so that, that's been, that's been an interesting thing. It's also been interesting to um, a challenge uh, when I have at times approached race-based conversations um, with one brother-in-law in particular, he's the one that we, we talk the most about these things. Um, he sometimes comes up against this idea that like, well, it must be different in the States than it is here. But if you follow black British people on the internet, it's not different, <laughs> like it is not different. Um, but in his experience and with, you know, his limited, because we're all limited to like our sphere of, of influence, um, he, it's, it doesn't, some things just don't compute to him or he doesn't think they translate. Um, and so it kind of leaves us at an impasse at times. Um, and then with my family, there really haven't been a whole lot of issues since we started dating. And my mom, my mother, my mother is like one of my best friends now, but we have not always had that relationship dynamic. Um, and when I told her that I was dating a white man, and then later when I told her that we were engaged, she just got quiet in that way that only black mothers can get quiet. And you get scared because all the air just left the room. Mm. And um, I wrongly interpreted that, which I think I can share now because she and I have talked about it since. Um, I interpreted that as her not wanting me to be with somebody who was white. Um, I now know probably found this out like 10 years in, like it was a while in and I wish she had told me sooner. Her concern was for me not to lose myself. Um, she did not want me to get married so young. She did not want me to lose my sense of my own goals and identity. Um, that, that was her concern. So at the time, I thought it was something other than it is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's kind of where uh, the family piece kind of comes in, which not to dump on that side of the family at all, because we do have conversations and with my father-in-law and with that particular brother-in-law, we have like good, deep, hard conversations. It's just not something everybody is a part of. And it, sometimes it depends on how much wine you've had to drink. Um, and then, you know, also see the aforementioned opinionatedness. It's whatever, I'm right. So you don't have to agree, but it's still right. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where the family piece has kind of presented some challenges. Karita, you said a couple things that caught my attention. Um, 
And one, you're talking about this, this idea of what we do uh, socially, culturally to um, black suffering and this idea of forgiveness and, and what the expectation is in an unhelpful way. Um, I would say even outside of my own process of trying to continually become more and more anti-racist and moving in that direction as a therapist, as a trauma therapist and sex therapist and someone that works with couples, I struggle so much at times with how the church handles forgiveness and reconciliation in general. Um, and as race has been become a stronger part of that conversation because of what has happened in, in, you know, the recent couple years, specifically opening up, I would say white eyes more, hopefully. Um, I I'm always pressed to bring up, I, I sometimes think the church has made forgiveness a very cheap process and that is hurting, um, the true healing that needs to happen. And also very in being very invalidating to the wounded party. Um, that yes, I believe that forgiveness is a tenant of the Christian evangelical faith, but a cheap version of forgiveness, I, that's not what I believe my Jesus did. And so if we're supposed to be Christ-like, there is a, a depth and a, um, a gravity to what forgiveness costs. Um, and, we're, and I maybe that'll be a podcast for future things to talk about how to really do that well. But one of my favorite models talks about you can't forgive until you recall the hurt until you can name the debt and I feel like sometimes we expect people in the church to move into the I don't know warm fuzzy part of it without sitting in the pain and sitting in the reality and sitting in the wound and the transgression and so I hear you talking about that and it's it's striking a part of my heart in a in a, a unique way of what's been a burden for me um I also think that, uh, you know, you're talking about um, just certain family members that are willing to have those conversations and, and not, and I'm, I'm just reminded of my own kind of anti-racist journey. Like it is like peeling back layers of an onion to get acquainted with my white privilege and fragility. Um, and I'm always so quick, um, probably these last couple of years with my husband, at one point I looked at him and I said, I... I am, I am more aware of those things than I've ever been. And I, I, I just want you to know that, um, and that, that I, I want to love you well in that as I continue this journey. And, um, it, it is interest it is an interesting dynamic, but I, I believe that awareness gives us the opportunity to be empowered, to do different. So I'm very thankful for it on my end as the, the white person in the conversation, at least in our family, like I, I want to be more aware. I want to peel back you know, what's been taught to me that's not been helpful uh, in, in so many ways. Katrina, family. Um, I actually have a unique situation because I have lived with my in-laws for, since we bought our house. We moved in in April, they moved in in June. And so I live in a predominantly white household. So you, um, they moved into your house? They moved into our house, yes, um, which is, again, that's a whole story for a whole nother day, but um, it works really well for us. However, when all of this, you know, when things started happening in our society, there was a lot of pain that I was experiencing that they saw and they were concerned with because of their love for me, um, but they couldn't understand. They didn't understand. Um, 
And I, um, side note, we can include this if you want, not if you don't. I'm an ENFP A and I'm an Enneagram 4B. So I Kimberly can attest to this. I, I can tell you like when certain things happen, but I am not going to be able to say like this specific thing happened. This person was killed. This is what, so like, just like I need grace and forgiveness in that because it's not who I am. Okay. It's not in here. Okay. Oh, no. All cool. of you is welcome here. <laughs> but all of that to say that there was, I, that there had been a recent death and someone was killed and I don't, I cannot place exactly who it was. And my in-laws were in Alabama and they were watching the news about it. And again, it was very new. It was very painful. It was all of those things. And, um, my mother-in-law called me and she was in tears and she was like, Katrina, I understand. Like it may, I, I get it. And it was in 2017. And so I want to say it could have been like Philando Castile or somewhere in that like time frame. Eric Garner, that was kind of around the general time frame. But um I want to say it was like 2017 and she called and she just she was like, I I don't understand, but I I, I'm starting to under, you know, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to see it. And she was broken. I mean, she was broken by that. And so that was a big blessing because I, I think in regards to um, living in my, a house with all white people and with my husband's parents um, who have been kind and respectful and loving on all of those things, but I still sometimes am the daughter-in-law. Um and so I feel like I was given space to be black. I've, I've always felt that that was something that was, that there's just always been space for that, for me to be exactly who I am and for my culture and my family to be celebrated and all of those things. And um, we've been really lucky in that my family and my husband's family actually get along insanely well like really well and so as the topics of race came up in our culture um you know there were a lot of difficult conversations I do feel like without there the intention being there there was more burden placed on me just because I'm the black girl in the family and so then if there's questions or if there's curiosity or anything like that they talk to me um which can be a little wearying at times but I also think they recognize that and so over the years we've grown and they've done research and they've learned and they've read and they've asked hard questions and engaged in hard topics um and so I feel like that's something where family for us has been um with regards to race relations race race relations in our country and just in general um I feel like it's been a big blessing in terms of family um with my extended family, Jason, uh, just a funny story. Um, but, uh, his grandpa died or something. And so we went to Alabama for the funeral. And so that was a like, Hey, Katrina, we all kind of want to be, make sure you're ready to go to the country and see all the people. And I was like the only black girl there. And, um, Jan, I love her. My mother-in-law in her attempts to, uh, kind of like let people know hey my daughter-in-law is coming she's black we love it deal with that on your own take that information and do with it what you need to 
she showed a picture um, to some of Jason's other extended family and somebody said, oh, she looks like Oprah. <laughs> I don't look near a thing like no Oprah, but that was their way of saying, oh, she's black. And Jan was like, she is black. I, I wouldn't say Oprah, <laughs> but anyway, so going to that was interesting. And so, yeah, you do get into a little bit of the stereotypical Alabama culture um, yeah. with his extended family. His immediate family is wonderful. Um, so, yeah, siblings are fine. I think my parents are funny, Karita. When I told my mom I was marrying Jason, she, she actually said she was like, I kind of always thought you might wear, marry a white boy. And like, that was kind of the end of it. <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that, but okay. Um, but I mean, they've always accepted him. And I, I feel like in terms of our families and how they've impacted us, they've, again, the things that have impacted us deeply as a family unit, Jason and myself, and then expanding out to our extended family, his, his family and my family have, they, they've been different race was not the thing. Um, so there's a lot we've had to work through. I don't know if that's just my story to tell, but, um, especially again, kind of what you said, Karita, on a recorded podcast, uh, we'll talk about it later. Um, but race was not, I don't feel like for our story, race was necessarily that thing. There's been education specifically in the last four years and kind of leading up to, you know what, it might've been the Charleston shootings, actually. I remember Jan just being like broken over that and she was just heartbroken over it. Um, anyway, but just over the happenings of the last several years, uh, there's been a lot more conversations. I think that my in-laws have thankfully been um they've been open and they've chosen to see because I personally feel like it's a choice you choosing to see or you're choosing not to see and then you hide behind excuses that you don't see but you do you just don't really feel like you want to engage which is whatever I that's your decision but um they've made the choice to see um and they've learned a lot and they've grown a lot and I've been really really thankful for that so You ladies are both parents, so are we. Um, curious just what your experience has been like as mothers um, in raising children with the interracial dynamic. Um, you know, some of your personal journey as, as mothers and um, just parenting tiny humans in, in some hard spaces sometimes. Um, but then even because your your kiddos are older, um, Karita, and I know that Katrina, um, our littles are similar ages. And so conversations will, will look and sound different. But just what parenting has looked like in that dynamic, um, specifically as we talk about interracial marriage and interracial parenting and, um, you know, the uniqueness of that, of that journey. So would love to I, I have some very child-specific, unique anxieties regarding my children, and I think that for a good chunk of my adult life, um, I really was just kind of trying to lay low and hope that if I put on enough white culture outwardly, um, 
did enough of the right white things in church that maybe my children might be spared. <laughs> and then, you know, cut to Tamir Rice playing with a toy gun in a park um, and police officers not even completely stopping the car before that child was gone. Um, so here is the deal. My baby, my firstborn, my Gabriel John, um, he is 13. And let me tell you, he sounds like a whole dude and his voice is still changing and I am not okay with it. Um, he is like, he's very, he's like, he's a beanpole. He's very tall. He's like, he's cute. He's probably about here on me. And Kimberly, you remember, I'm not short. Um, like I'm five, nine ish. My husband's six, three. I just didn't think it would happen to me this soon that my child would be like, like, I feel like within six months, I'm going to be fussing at him like this because he's just, he's tall baby. He's my, he's my love bug. Um, he is my gamer. He is my cut and dry. Um, he is, a and I really think this was of my children, um, that they were who they are when I brought them home from the hospital. So my Gabriel was a self-scheduled child. He came home uh, sleeping, like eating every three hours and sleeping for two hours in between each feeding. Um, and if I ever got off his schedule, he would just, he would just, fall to pieces and he is still that child like he follows he checks off the list um and he is also my child who does not pick up on social cues um he does not realize if someone is necessarily being rude to him um he he doesn't always hear people when they're talking because he gets very focused on what he's doing especially if it's a game um and so my worry for him as he gets older is that that will come across as him being obstinate or which he can be full disclosure but he isn't always being that way when it could come across that way um and so i am concerned as he gets older and spends more time away from us that he will come across as being intimidating to someone when really he's just being there um and i will share too that um when the uh, transcript of Elijah McLean's murder was um, released to the internet at large. That one broke my husband. Like so much of Elijah McLean's last words sounded like what Gabriel would say. Like he, like this, this young man was apologizing as he was being killed. Like, like he threw up because he couldn't breathe, and he was like, "I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that." Like he just was trying his best to be polite. Um, and so much of that sounded like our Gabriel. So that's my one set of anxieties for him. And then I have this other child, my cupcake. Um, so Reese uh, came home just wanting to eat and talk all the time. Like that's all he wants to do. He wants to chat and he wants to eat and then he wants to chat and eat again. Um, and he he has remained that, that extroverted child. He's like every... Every mom who's ever texted me to try and get a play date has said, oh, you know, my son talks about Reese all the time. They're best friends. And I'm like, who is your child again? Because everybody thinks Reese is their best friend. And so my worry for him as he gets older is that he will think everybody is his best friend and really they're not. Um, we even, like we went over to play, uh, to like sit outside and have s'mores um, with a friend last weekend and a couple of, like we're, the friend whose house we were at is a, a girl friend of Reese's and 
she had another friend over there who was spending the night and so the three of them were playing but these two little white girls and my son and they were like they're on the trampoline they're horse playing and I'm just like how much longer will this be okay before I have to tell my son you can't do that like I don't know that's um that's how it is raising them (laughs) um it's I have learned that when it comes to the talk that I know I have to have with them, it doesn't have to be all at once. And that has helped because um, we've had so many talks, you know, I've told them, like, you know, I see you as biracial, you are both black and white. Um, but when you are not with us, people, I mean, you look black enough that you will just be seen as black and that will mean that you could be perceived and treated a certain way. You need to know that. Um, and the older that older one gets, the more we have to have that conversation with Reese. I feel like I've got a little bit more time um, but with Gabriel, uh, it's it's a struggle. I have anxiety. I have anxiety. I think you there's so much wisdom in your statement that I don't have to have that conversation all in one sitting. That I can, I we can do that in pieces. Um, and I hear your heart for for um, protecting him and um, honoring and elevating the beauty in who he is. Like there's just so much tension between those two worlds. Yeah. How how much I have curiosity, and you you mentioned it a little bit at the end. Um, and I and I'm asking this question because I don't hear a lot of this conversation coming up in the dialogue that is getting stirred up in our society, which I think is good. Um. I'm curious about the the mixed race dynamic and speaking to that. Um, how much does that come up um, for for you and your family, Karita? Okay, so it's something that so Gabriel was an onion like his daddy, um, where Reese is much more verbal like I am, and so with Reese, I this is going to sound kind of silly, but it's y'all. Black Panther was a phenomenon. And my child got way into it. Like he was, like he spent his birthday money on an $80 Black Panther costume. Um, and he's watched it again and again and again. Like I have no, I think that Reese identifies as Black. Like they both know they're biracial, but I think that Reese probably identifies more that way than Gabriel does. But I don't think Gabriel gives thought to it. He, um, you know, he thinks about what's in front of him and what he has to do. And that's kind of, that's kind of it. Um, so I think it's a conversation, kind of like the talk we have to have with our children about trying to keep them safe, especially when they're away from us. I think it'll be something, even like with you know Katrina and Kimberly, like when we look back, even at our college years, we know that our sense of identity has been evolving, um, not even just from that moment, but through it. And so I think that um, I, what I what I've said to my kids is you are both black and white, how you choose to identify is ultimately up to you. Nobody else can tell you that. That'll be something you figure out for yourself and however you identify is okay because you are who you are. Um, But at the end of the day, you need to know how you will be seen um, because that needs to guide some of your actions, especially in public. Um, I feel like I'm in the... I'm in the, I am in the early stages of parenting. Um, and 
when Sandra Bland was killed, that actually happened like less than an hour away from my house. Um, and so there was a lot of fear because Carson was, a, it was just, yeah, it was just Carson. I, we didn't have Caden yet. And Carson was little. And I was like, I live in, uh, it's not an all white community by any stretch. I wouldn't say it's quite as multicultural because I mean, it's more of a suburb. Um, but I was like, what if I go to the grocery store with my baby and I'm seen as a threat somehow because I am a plus size black woman. I'm not petite. Like, what if? And so what do I do? How do I handle this? Do I go to the grocery store? And there were times where I was too afraid to go to the grocery store, you know, after Sandra Bland was killed. And so Jason and I, you know, we had a lot of conversations about that. Um, and I was watching the boys play and just looking at them now. And I, um, Carson and Gabriel share some similarities in their personalities, I think kind of as the firstborn um, boy. And so Carson, Caden's just a toddler. Carson, we've had more conversations with and, and he's just starting to kind of get, I've asked him like, is my is mommy different from daddy kind of thing you know and he's like well mommy's brown and daddy's white and so that'll kind of be the end of the conversation um looking at them I completely agree with everything Karita said and I'm just farther back in the process where everybody now as mixed race babies with olive skin and hazel eyes and sandy brownish hair they they're so cute because they're so Oh my gosh, they're just the cutest. And, and, you know, I get the comments, mixed race babies are just so much, they're just so pretty. Like they're just, you know, they're just the cutest. And I'm like, well, thanks. But it's not like that was like a genetic experiment, you know, like they're just my kids. Um, and so they're really cute. They're like a novelty kind of is what it feels like now to people. Um, I also agree that they're going to be big. They're going to be big boys they are they have big parents we're just large in stature both of us they're going to be big boys and how they're perceived is isn't an area of concern um I also it's very important to me that they are with both sets of extended parents because they live with white grandparents and Carson's best friend right now is his cousin who is black. Um, and so being with my parents is really important to me because I want them to, to feel the acceptance and feel at home in both cultures. Like that's something that is deeply important to me. Um, and I, I want them to know that where they land on this, this, the spectrum and the scale and what they decide for themselves about how they identify I want them to feel at home regardless. Carson is my soulful baby. We're camping with my family and we say, we're like, oh, Carson is soulful and he is soulful, okay? But he looks like he's could be Kim, Kimberly's baby. Like he doesn't look like he should come home with me. He looks like Kimberly needs to pick him up from daycare. And so navigating what that, you know, what, what that looks like for him in his life he is assertive. He is um, very determined. And again, it's really cute when they're two and a half. 
what does that look like when he's 16 and he is bigger than me and all of the things that Karita said he's taller than me he's bigger than me he's got a deep voice and you know Carson was they're both fairly light-skinned just like in the winter but Carson spent a lot of time outside and so he got really brown and then there were the comments about oh he got so brown I'm like well he is black like that's the thing you know his mama you see her see right here um anyway so I mean I think there's fears I think there's concerns I think as a a parent period there's fears and concerns I think there's the extra layer of um how is the world gonna see my baby you know and I feel like as a mother watching the mothers that have mourned the losses of their children as we've watched at press conference after press conference like how many press conferences do we have to have but like the 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 heartbreak of the black mother and the pain that she has to carry um I mean yeah there's fear there's anxiety there's there's just concern and worry and like as a mom you want your children to be who they're who they are God breathed to be like that's what you want as a parent and as a mother and then as a black mother as a black parent this fear of like well if you turn whoever that is that you're God breathed to be what if the world says that that just because of what you look like that's not good enough you know or that's not acceptable or whatever and then again it's it you're reduced from a person and made in the image of God to something that's offensive and and should no longer be you know um I don't think you're going to talk to any black mother who doesn't have just this anxiety around like how is well how does the world going to see my baby because there are babies yeah um yeah but anyway I it's um so we got to download a little bit before we started recording um because I'm getting to know you guys um, in this setting. And I shared with you all that I have two children who are mixed race, but at this point in time, at almost four and eight, do not look like they are black at all. Um, and some of that is because, you know, I mean, we're a little shooting in the dark. So I think there's probably some, some layers there, but about 25% black and 75% white. And so there's a reason for that, even though we were surprised at how you know, European they looked. Um, and that may change as they get older. Um, like, you know, my husband and I talk about that as they age, some of those features may, may present more. Um, but I have had, um, Katrina, you talked about one of your sons looks like he should go home with Kimberly. I have had the fear that my husband who's mixed race and darker skin picking up our two very white looking children or getting pulled over with our two white children in the back and people assuming that something is amiss. And, um, and while I deeply care about my husband's experience of that, like I, as a mother, I'm going, I'm terrified of what that would do to my children. Like for someone to assume, cause I don't know about you guys, but like my husband and I've run this scenario. I'm like, what would you do to prove that they're yours? Like we don't like walk around with birth certificates in our back pocket. Like I don't know, maybe we should do like we've talked about that. And so it's a it's not 
the way our kids look, but it's the, it's my husband's presentation of color. Um, and then on the other side for us in, in my, my journey of growth, working through the idea of appropriation and, um, wanting to, to be better about that in general, and then struggling with, I want my children to, I think Karita, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to quote you well at all in this, but you said, I want them to develop who they, they identify as over time. And I'll never forget. My daughter was like three and she was looking in the mirror and I was brushing her hair. And she said, you know, mommy, I have a little black in me. I said, yes, you do, baby. And she said, and then one day when I get to heaven, I'm going to be brown and I'm going to speak Spanish, you know, and it's just her very childlike. And I thought, I think that's delightfully kingdom oriented. Like we just <laughs> celebrated her heart. Um, but I, I also am concerned as they don't, they do not look black at all, but if they love that part of their daddy and that side of our family and choose to identify what that's going to be like for them. And Karita, you just have such beautiful words. Like we, we have to teach them what they look like and how they will be seen and how, how to navigate that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm just listening and learning so much from you ladies in this moment. Well, and I feel like my husband taking my kids to the grocery store is like a novelty. It's cute. Oh, look, they're just, you know, cause they don't look super Brown. So these just cute little kids with their daddy. And then again, same exactly what you're saying. Like, me as the brown mom taking my light-skinned boys to do anything you know you can feel that there is a much higher likelihood of suspicion and question and just concern where concern is not the appropriate response because they're my kids but mm -hmm. um yeah yeah and i think yeah what's funny is oh i'm sorry Go ahead. No, what's funny to me is just as I'm thinking, I think that my kids look very obviously biracial. Um, but my my parents, like my mom, especially, she'll be like, Karita, they're pretty light. And I'm like, but they look black. Like, what are you talking about? Like, they're not, I mean, I just think they're like a perfect blend of our two skin tones. They're kind of golden, you know? Um, but, and because we live in Longview, which is not, it's not huge, it's not tiny. But like we live here and Andrew and I spent our whole adult lives here. So the chances of us like running into somebody who cannot make the connection between their parents and like parents and children is kind of slim because we probably know people. Like if we are all four together or like even just three of us are together, like somebody's gonna know one of us. So they're gonna be able to figure out who we are. So that hasn't been a particular uh, struggle. But I do remember one time when the boys were in I think Gabriel must have been in like pre-K, like he was four or five and he had like drawn a picture at school and I was the only brown person in the picture. <laughs> so like, but he drew all four of us. So we're sitting at the dinner table and I'm like, so Gabriel, tell me about this picture. And he's like, well, daddy's pink and Reese is pink and I'm pink and you're brown. And my feelings were hurt. I was like, you're brown. <laughs> He, he was just a little kid, like, you know, doing little kid things. But um, I don't know. It's funny to me now because they've gotten older and I know that we can have age appropriate conversations about some things. But at the time I was like, 
I do not like this. <laughs> I did not feel good. I don't I don't like the way this picture just went. I probably that person in the room. <laughs> so cute. As you ladies are talking, um, you know, I um I have a little girl. She looks like me. She looks white. She's um, half Hispanic. Um, we had the awesome opportunity of being able to put that mixed race, checking those boxes on her birth certificate and all of that. Um, we care very much about her, again, deciding how she will identify um, her being very familiar with the cultural aspects of the Hispanic community and her family there. Um, and I think though my, my fears are, are not in the same place as they are for you ladies as mamas, um, I think I have a, a different fear that she is by default for, you know, because we live where we live, handed white privilege because of how she looks and wanting her to be able to nuance race and ethnicity and culture and be able to um, be an advocate and, and, and not, um, not be as damaging as some of our white brothers and sisters are, um, to, to people of color. Um, and because she's, she's got that, that part of her heritage one, but two, I just don't want my kids to move through the world like that. Um, and so, um, as I hear you talk, I think about her, her playing with kids of color and, and those sorts of things and navigating those conversations as you guys sit in different fears um, and different concerns and how long can we do this? Um, you know, the, the constant conversation that my husband and I are having is what does it look like for her to, um, to live well and love well as a interracial kid that looks white but we we sit in spaces of um all race and all ethnicities and all cultures and um you know so I think that's that's where I wrestle well um and part of why I want to keep having these conversations whether recorded or not because I want to be able to sit in spaces one to hold my community and my friends fears, you know, I want to be able to sit with you and um, validate that and just not that I can do anything for that for you, but just to sit well with you, but then also talk about what does it look like to parent together in, in community well, um, to, to maybe do our part to pivot the conversation and experience, maybe just a tiny bit, <laughs> you know, just to where kids who are, who look white, are white, look brown, look black, look um, mixed race, um, to be able to have a different experience knowing we're so far away from that safe space and ability to do that. And so I think that's some of the pressure I feel is to be able to do that well with, um, with our kids who will inevitably look white but have that beautiful latinx culture um running through their blood and teach them all of those things but um how to engage well and so um i appreciate the vulnerability in you sharing all of you your your fears your concerns your anxieties um the weight um that exists 
um, as mamas um, mm-hmm. because I, as a mama who doesn't carry that same weight for a variety of reasons, um, still want to sit well with you. And then I want to raise my kids alongside you in, in a better way, hopefully, than um, maybe generations before us have. And then maybe some others even around us right now are. Um, yeah. As we um, start to wrap up, I have, we have a few, we have two questions and mine's going to be two part because I'm adding to it because I don't follow the rules. Um, I'm curious. As Captain Brown says, because that's your business. That's right. This is my business. Um, I would like to know what you would like our audience to know from this conversation today. And then the 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 part b that i'd like to add is um for white parents who are who are raising a variety of mixed race babies what would you want us to know um i would be curious to know your answer to that question okay so i am going to start by saying sometimes you have to get it wrong to get it right And I think it's important for us to um, release ourselves from the anxiety that comes with feeling like we can't say anything until we know the exact right thing. Um, We're just, we're not going to get it right all the time. And maybe even especially in these things that feel really big and important and hot button right now, we um, want to like make sure we get it right first and then speak. And yet while we're waiting, we could be alienating those around us. So I would say just don't let fear of getting it wrong keep you from trying um, would be my admonition. Um, And then I will also share like a hopefully brief anecdote. Um, So something that has clicked for me recently that began when I was at college with uh, Katrina and Kimberly was... um, So when we were there, I just feel like I remember a lot of chapel speakers talking about getting out of your comfort zone, especially when it was around like spring break missions time. And I didn't understand why there was always this constant like emphasis on not being comfortable. Like it didn't make sense to me. And I think it's, it's in part because I'm awkward. Like I'm not comfortable. Like what zone are you talking about? Um, Which level of uncomfortable? (laughs) This is what I'm saying. <laughs> Even as I've gotten like older and more settled in our liturgical faith, um, just side note, I was raised Black Baptist and then got kind of dunked into this evangelical conservative culture at Laterno and am now a confirmed Episcopalian. Um, but like there is a certain subset of Christian culture specifically in America that is like obsessed with comfort um, and obsessed with always telling people to stop being comfortable but something I realized like within the last couple of months is oh white people talk about comfort all the time because they usually are comfortable like that's why they are so um, they have such a strong reaction against these topics because they're used to being comfortable. And I'm so used to being uncomfortable because I am black and because I am assertive and because I am a woman and because I don't quote sound black and because I am progressive in a conservative area, like I'm so used to being uncomfortable that my resting face is uncomfortable. 
So there's like, there's a gap there. So I think that the second thing I would like to say to people to take away from it is to not necessarily get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, but when you feel that sense of defensiveness and that sense of, I feel threatened here, um, to take a page from Brene Brown's mini books and get curious about the feeling, like you don't have to sit with it forever, but sit with it long enough to pick at where the feeling actually came from. And if it's coming from within or if it's coming from without and it's something you can actually work through um, to potentially change and make better, like just get comfortable with that. Wow, Karita, thank you. That was so good. Yes, I love bringing um, oh, Yes. Um, I would, I'm going to preface mine by saying part of who I am that has was in college and endures to this day is that I love I'm a I'm a lover of people I'm a lover of stories I have always been that way I will always be that way and it's something I love the most about me I love relationship I I just that's just who I am like I I love people however <laughs> my answer is and I've said this word a lot lately, and I'm going to say it again. I am not your novelty. I'm not your, I'm not on your checkbox. Like I am a woman and I am a Christian and I have faith and I have hopes and I have dreams and I'm raising children and I'm in a marriage and I'm living a life, a full happy life that I have built with my people. I don't have the space to be to make you feel comfortable. I don't have the space to be on your checkbox to see a black woman with in a mixed race marriage or interracial marriage with mixed race kids. And um, I, I don't have the space to, to be seen as that and then engage with just because that's what I present to you. However, I'm always available for relationship. And I think that it's important that if you as a white person or someone who is wanting to engage in this topic, in this area, in this sphere of conversation, if you're wanting to engage in that, I would be happy to enter into a relationship with you. But I don't have the space to just do the surface thing. Um, and so that's what I would say. That would be my piece of advice. My piece of feedback is to see the people that you're wanting to engage with and engage with them. If that's really what you want, then do it. I'm sorry, but don't come with me with the bullshit. Like don't, sorry if that's not podcast appropriate, but don't, I just, I'm not here for that. Um, I am happy to engage with you in genuine relationship, in genuine conversation. Um, but I want you to recognize that there's a whole multifaceted life that's being lived that what you see and what you present as, you know, or what you see as race, that's one part of a lot that's happening in, in a very full and happy life that I'm living. Um, so that's what I would love for people to know is that the black people around you, we are saying all of these things and we're expressing all of these things, but there are, there's not this need to be swooped in and saved or swooped in and whatever. Like we're, we're, 
I, I don't want to speak for every black person. I, I don't, that makes me very uncomfortable, but I know for me, like I'm doing all right. These are areas of concern, but I'm doing okay. Um, I want you to know that I welcome your relationship. I welcome your, your involvement in my life. If that's what you want. I don't welcome your, um, you're treating me like, yeah, like a novelty, I guess. Um, and then I think for, I don't, I, I'm the, the people raising children, um, white people raising interracial children, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm going to skip that one because I don't really know what I have to say, but um, I think it's probably the same kind of, it's along the same, same veins, I guess. Um, so anyway, I will jump in on that one just a little Katrina, because I, I had in my mind something that was directed toward that part of, um, Jenna's question, but, um, I'm going to go back to the Ocho conversation. So I started out watching those and I've fallen off. So I'm like way behind, but I saw the episode that he, where he interviewed that the woman from the bachelor, I think the bachelorette, yep. right? Um, and then there was that Olympian, beautiful blonde-haired woman, and I wanted to, I wanted to smack her, um, because at one point she said that she doesn't see color and she doesn't think that she has to, and uh, so let me just make that my one piece of advice to white people raising interracial children is don't say that shit around them, um, and please don't believe it for yourself because you do have to see it, mm -hmm. yeah. nor a part of who your child is. That is that way lies madness. That's not a good idea. Yeah, thank you. Final question. We ask everybody. That we ask everybody. Um, we would like to know what you are taking away from this conversation. Um, you guys have given us so much of your, your heart and your vulnerability and uh, your story and we are so grateful, but um, as you part ways um, from the conversation, um, just curious what you're taking away from our time together as we've discussed interracial marriage, parenting, um, and so much more. Um, so, yeah. so I think I'm kind of taking away, it's been really interesting to hear you guys talk about your, your own children, um, because I when I think of interracial or biracial children, I think of children who look obviously, obviously biracial because of their hair texture or skin color or combination of skin color, eye color. Um, so it's kind of challenging my own ideas of what I assume about people when I see them. Like it's kind of causing me to reflect on that a little bit. And I did, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but like Shortly into the school year, I made a problematic assumption about a child thinking he spoke Spanish and he did not. And that didn't end well. Um, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't think any less of him, but he's also a child I barely know. And I spoke to him in Spanish um, and he was like, why did you do that? And it, so it's kind of causing me to kind of really um, maybe think a little bit more deeply um, about and more, more deeply and more broadly maybe um, about what it means to have an interracial identity and how that might present outwardly even when physically um, you may not look obviously to someone else like you have a, a right to a culture that you don't look like you represent. 
Thank you. I think I'm learning that it's just, you know, no story is the same. No human story is the same. So why would we expect that along racial lines, the stories would be the same? Like, it doesn't make any sense, you know? And I think that's what I'm taking away from this is that there can be such stark similarities in a story along the same color lines, along the same college history lines, <laughs> but they're not the same. Um, and I think the stories need to be told. I think we need to be more bold in telling our own stories. I think that we need to see the value in our stories, which is a woman, like, like Karita said, it's a, it's a gender topic, which is a whole nother, that's a whole other conversation. But as women, we need to value our stories. And um, as people of color, we need to just value that we need to value the story. Like the story exists for a reason. It's each one is meaningful. And I think that each one in, in its own time and space and way is worth being told. Um, and I think that's kind of what I'm taking away from it is that, is that, yeah, that our, our stories need to be told and they're worthy. Um, so, and they're not all the same. Don't expect along race lines for the stories to all be the same. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I so appreciate your candor and your vulnerability. And um, the two things I remember about both of you is just your, your beautiful way of expressing just yourselves um, and, and sharing your story to your point, Katrina. Um, I think you, you both have such a beautiful, unique gift of doing that. And I appreciate your generosity in the space today with us, um, with our listeners to talk about what it's like um, as black women to be in interracial marriages, um, where that has been really a, a beautiful thing, you know, a really um, glorious thing and where it's also been a really painful thing. And so I, I thank you for your for your time, but then also for your story, um, because I, I don't take it for granted. Um, that to Katrina's point, I, and I think um, definitely a, a podcast for another time, but just we as women and telling our story and feeling confident to, to do that in all of the messy and beautiful parts of that. So thank y'all so much for so graciously um, doing that with us today. Krita, girl, you are like amazing. I don't know. I feel like I'm fumbling, but I'm just doing it anyway. That's where Same. I no way. I was like, damn it. Of course I would be on here with Karita, the master of the English language. And I'm like, hurt you girl. Karita's like, you guys. That's because I talk all the damn time. Mm. You guys, I heard you good rumors. That's because I talk all the damn time. <laughs> You're like, I'm well practiced, okay? Yes. I stay practicing. <laughs> stay practicing. <laughs> Wow. I knew that was going to be a lot of fun, um, e even in the complexity and um, nuance and challenge of the topic of the conversation. But 
Katrina and Karita are so dear to me. And um, anytime I get to talk to friends, right, it's just a lot of fun. So I, I, they I'm are delightful human they're beings. They're just so fun. Um, truly, like oh, man. I, I genuinely, I think about you know. There's certain people you think about in your life, and you just smile. And those two women are are those people. And so I'm. My takeaway um, is a lot of joy and gratitude today um, that mm-hmm. my friends um, <laughs> got to hang out with us on the podcast and talk about being in in a relation interracial relationship and raising biracial kids. A really hard topic, you know. Yeah, a complex one at best. Um, yeah, I don't. I know we said this as we introduced the episode and talked about this is like why we wanted to do this episode. I'm so thankful for the conversations that are being had about race um, and racism and the injustice of it all. And um, the families that are interracial and multi-heritage, it is a very, interesting experience that I I don't think gets attention as much attention and I I don't know maybe there's not enough space right now like I it is just it's a really messy painful world um but we wanted we wanted to have space for that and so those two women I tell you what they are um brilliant and kind and um like they just ooze the fruit of the spirit <laughs> in so many ways so i'm i'm so thankful that they were willing to be in that space with us and i feel really enriched um on many levels by the conversation yeah and i think their groundedness and um graciousness was a challenge and an invitation to me um because i know in the context um, that they're in, just as women of color in general, but then specifically coming out of 2020, mm-hmm. um, that they are weary and are not giving out of their abundance. <laughs> and yet they showed up in such a kind, compassionate way with us. And um, I'm just full of a lot of gratitude. And that then spurs on an invitation for me to express that, but then also really think well and rightly about my own anti-racist journey. Um, Like their kindness was convicting in all the right ways for me to, Mm -hmm. to stay in that journey, to invest in that journey. Um, Because we, we know though we share the dynamic of being an inter- racial relationships and um, being parents in that space and all of that. Um, Two women of color sat down with two white women, and I know that we're all coming from different spaces, and so it makes me aware of um, white fragility for me, Mm -hmm. um, the privileges that I have, white privilege, all that. Um, And so I feel appropriately challenged and convicted to 
stay in the space, continue to have hard conversations, let it be really imperfect and messy and hard um, as we bridge towards becoming more and more anti-racist as spouses, as mothers, as humans in the world. As friends. Is that your takeaway? I didn't technically ask you the question. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think that's my takeaway. Mine's kind of similar. Um, Like I walked away with a ton of gratitude for the conversation. Um, I finding words is so hard um, because I feel appropriately convicted. (laughs) It's just about, I think as they were talking um, and you were sort of talking about this, like I think what we share is we are in interracial relationships and parenting uh, in that space uh, with our children. We do share that space with each other. And then I am so incredibly aware that I don't share the space that they have to experience on these other levels. And um, so I think, um, and that breaks my heart on so many levels. I, I think it just peeled back more layers of my awareness of how my white fragility and privilege just sort of comes out sideways and squarely. And mm-hmm. I may have the best of intentions, but I am so figuring this out and make mistakes in that. And so um, as I just listen to them talk about their parenting and specifically their parenting, how I I want to do a good job of supporting my children's process um, rather than in my white guilt and fragility and privilege overexert myself as like the white mom who's trying to prove something like I'm doing this well, you know, like I, I just think I felt really gently and appropriately. I don't even think they said that to me, although it would have been appropriate if they did. Like, I'm just aware that like, I so desperately want to do the right thing. And that's birthing out of me working out my own anti-racism and sometimes in a imperfect way that I just watched and listened to their groundedness in it. And I was like, Oh, okay. Thank you for modeling that far better than I'm pulling it off. And um, wanting to to do that well in my own family. So um, just their presence and composure and kindness, I think, was a really sweet way of calling me further into my anti-racist journey. So I think that was my takeaway. Yeah. So thank you, Katrina and Karita, for your time and energy and groundedness and everything that makes you who you are because man I, I i'm taking a lot away today from our conversation yeah me too and i can't wait for the next one i know thank you for joining us arable podcast is hosted by jenna mountain and kimberly galindo and edited and co-produced by chris vargas and hosted on podbean you can find us on apple podcast and spotify visit our website arablepodcast.com and find Arable Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find both of us on Facebook. You can find me, Kimberly Galindo, on Instagram at the Kimberly Galindo. And me, Jenna Mountain, on Instagram at the Jenna Mountain. 